Welcome to episode 283 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, who has four thumbs and loves creation? Uh, four thumbs? Oh, these guys. These guys. I was like, <laughs> who has four thumbs? I was like, if I had four thumbs, I'm not sure how I'd feel about creation because I'd be like a mutant. Actually, that's good. That's yeah. real good. I realized that that did kind of set a weird expectation and vibe to begin this It sounded like, the, like, a, this, like an origin story for a, like a superhero movie. Thumb that man. That does. He has four thumbs. That does. Uh, he well, can play still... two video games at once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Thumb Man can do, except I don't is, know, is he can more? hitchhike really well. Is there more? Should we unpack this more or I can I go? I don't, okay. I don't think we All should. Right. Somebody <laughs> should draw a comic, though, of Thumb Man. There was an X-Men, a lesser known X-Men, whose name was Gold Balls, and it's because all he could do was shoot these golden balls out of his hand. That was his whole power. They retconned him later, so they ended up being like eggs that could spawn new mutants or some craziness, but he was he was called Gold Balls for a long time. They, they weren't like super heavy. They didn't have a lot of force. He could just shoot them out of his hands. They just... They were just there, gold balls. Super valuable. Now, listen, I'm going to do something that's like for our old time listeners who've been with us a long time. Here's a deep cut. That's like Carrie Gephardt style. Am I right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100% go balls all the time. That there sounds really this, terrible if you don't understand the, uh, understand the context. But that listen, was the original send- mistranscribed voicemail, I think. Yes. So if you understand what that means, you should just send us an email at info at reformbrotherhood.com because that means that you've been tracking with us for quite some time. And if that makes no sense, here's what I recommend to you. You can go back and start at this episode called number one and just listen all the way through. (laughs) Eventually you'll get there and you'll hear exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I know. For those of you who are like, I thought this was a Christian show, it really sounds worse than it is. It was not, it's not a, it's not like even a a double entendre. It was just a funny mistranscribed phrase that we all laughed about for quite a long time. Somehow it became a strange anthem for it. it. There's like a period, like now... The podcast is so aged or seasoned. Let's use yes. that word. Be- that's more better. Like that's yeah. the season. More idea. better. More better. <laughs> it's more better that's seasoned. <laughs> um, yes, we're professional communicators. And it's gone through like epochs, right? Like I yeah. don't want to get dispensational about this podcast, but like there's been these epochs and there was a time where that was like our anthem. It was. This 100, it was the It was 100% go balls, right? Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent, go balls. Not fifty, all, not, and not not some of the time, all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now that we've spent a significant amount of time talking about not just an inside joke, but an out of date inside joke yes. from way back in the back catalog, uh, we should probably move on to some affirmations and denials. Yeah, l- let's get on to that. So, just in case you're wondering what's on the other side of affirmations and denials, we are talking about creation. And we're talking about the pre-fall state of man, yes. or actually the pre-fall state of everything. So if you've ever had thoughts or questions about that, I think we're going to get to them all, and this is definitive. Yes. But just to tease it a bit, 
let's get back to some, actually, this is just affirmations today. We've decided let's just bring some positivity and light into this lovely world that God has created by focusing purely in affirmations. So brother, what are you affirming on this episode? Yeah. So I, I want to affirm this podcast that I've listened to recently in a very qualified way. So this okay. is not, before anyone sends me an email with all sorts of like, did you think about that? Yes, I've thought about whatever it is you're probably asking me. This is a very qualified affirmation of a podcast called Science Versus, which is a podcast made by Gimlet Media. It's owned by Spotify. And basically the, the original premise of the podcast was sort of they would take, it's kind of like Mythbusters, but more science-y. So they would take a particular like, scientific understanding that was common, usually common among the population. And they would look at the actual scientific evidence in favor or opposed to whatever that view is. So they might look at science versus hair growth. And they would talk about like, does hair grow back thicker and darker when you shave or not? Like they would, it's that kind of show and it's entertaining enough as far as it goes. But, and this is where I need to qualify it. When the whole dust up, controversy about Joe Rogan uh, and vaccination information on Spotify came out. This show found themselves in a a tough place because they felt that the information that was being shared on Joe Rogan's show, specifically the episode, I don't remember the guy's first name, but with Dr. Malone, specifically that episode, they were very concerned about what they believed was misinformation coming out of that. Um, And and I don't want to get into that. I think most people probably can guess based on where we've been in the past, how we also would feel about some of the information coming out on that show. But rather than just cry out for him to be canceled, which I think they probably said like really, you know, this content is dangerously inaccurate and shouldn't be shouldn't be publicized by Spotify. But rather than just kind of like join the chorus of voices um, saying cancel the show, get it off the platform. What they did is they said, fine, we're, but we're just not going to do any more shows that don't deal with dismantling misinformation. So they're in this tricky spot because Spotify is their owner of their show. They, they have contractual obligations to Spotify. They're saying, Spotify, we're really uncomfortable with the with you allowing this information to be presented in the way it is. But Spotify didn't do anything with that. So they said, fine, then we're still going to make episodes, but all we're going to do is we're going to take misinformation that we find on the Joe Rogan experience. And we're going to, that's our new show is just debunking misinformation that we find uh, and that we hear on the Joe Rogan experience. And the reason I'm affirming this, like I said, this is a qualified affirmation. This show is, is run by people who would not share most of our presuppositions about the nature of right. the universe. They would not share our presuppositions about morality or uh, gender, you know, reality, gender differences, uh, traditional marriage. They would d- deny all of that stuff. They would be on opposite sides of this. But what they're seeking to do is to dialogue with the information and honestly assess it based on looking at scientific information. And so this is this is in my mind the the way that this should have happened all along is Joe Rogan says one thing or has a guest that says one thing and someone thinks it's inaccurate and so rather than just say take it off the platform or don't listen to that they actually say well, why don't we why don't we invest some energy into showing why it's wrong, showing why this the evidence doesn't point the direction that this guest or Joe Rogan or whoever says it does. And I think that actually this is God's common grace, right? Because these I, I don't want to say like this is a real integrity move because I don't I don't know that you can speak in 
language of integrity when you're talking about non-believers. Like there's a fundamental disintegrity of the human nature when you're talking about people who are not regenerated. But this is a sort of an evidence of like how the scientific method is supposed to work. Basically, they put forward a hypothesis and these people said that hypothesis is wrong and we're going to prove it. And they did that and they did that and they did that. So check it out. Um, this is something that happened last year. They're not making a lot of new episodes because they're sort of, like I said, they're restricting their content to this very narrow focus and there's not always something for them to respond to. But I thought that particularly the episode about the, the Malone interview that Rogan did, that episode actually was very good. I thought it was very good. They were actually very respectful. They didn't stoop to name calling or casting aspersions on people's characters. They stuck to the evidence. They stuck to the arguments. I thought it was actually a really good example of how to handle that kind of thing. Yeah, I've actually heard that episode. And I agree with you. So there's something about this where people ought to just respect all of the loyalty loyalties, like all the entanglements for them to just kind of step forward right. and make that episode. Yeah. So there's something noble about that, which I think is what you're after, right? That mm -hmm. this idea of trying to explore information for what it's worth, even knowing that like they have particular owners and sponsorships, there's money involved right. here. I was impressed by it. And again, the thing is we ought to listen to the evidence and follow the data wherever it directs us. Right. And I felt that they did a really good job of that very thing. So in some ways, like we're podcasters, it's very brave. Like we're part of the Reform Society of Podcasters, but that's like our own little network. It would, right. it would be like as if like you had to make a step against that. And that would be a bold move. Right. So I think yeah. in some ways they're very bold in their approach. But the episode itself was like super fair. I think that anybody would find it to be winsome, at least yeah. in this approach of trying to find the truth. And yeah. so that's where we have a lot to identify with there that we're after always in every way. What is the truth? Yeah. And, and just a side note, they utilized for basically all of their responses, they utilized my favorite uh, argument <laughs> of just read a little bit more. Like all yes, of the things that were said on the Joe Rogan experience in reference to studies, if you just read a little bit more of those studies, um, then, then it's pretty clear that the, the statements were taken out of context, which just goes to show you like that art, that position works beyond like biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation. Like if something doesn't seem right, or if, if the if the answer you're hearing doesn't seem like a reasonable answer, then just read a little bit more. And either you're going to understand why it was a reasonable answer or you're going to find out and see how it isn't a reasonable answer or reasonable explanation. So check it out. Yeah. It's called Science Versus. It's owned by Spotify, but you can get it. Uh, it's not a Spotify exclusive. You can get it anywhere. You can get podcasts. And yes. again, qualified qualified endorsement of this podcast. It's entertaining for what it is. Of they course. can be a little bit crude because sometimes like if they're doing science episodes about sex and things like that, they get, they get a little bit crude and they, they lean into that a little bit more than I would like. Um, but by and large, it's, it's just an entertaining podcast. And this really was... I don't use the word brave very often because a lot of times it's like, oh, it's so brave. And it's like really not brave at all. Um, <laughs> Joe Rogan making podcasts and making millions of dollars and not really right. having any threats of lo losing his platform. That's not really brave. Um, these people are relatively small fries compared to Joe Rogan, and they very easily could have had their entire podcast shut down and probably could have right faced on. a lawsuit. Spotify has not done that. Um, but they are actually breaking some of their contractual obligations in in confronting what they believe is a dangerous thing that their employer is at the very least enabling and at the very worst uh, actually like 
promoting and causing. So I think it was a it was a move that shows how passionately they think about this, how far they're willing to go to defend what they understand to be the truth, um, which are all admirable qualities that uh, again we're going to talk about image of God today. So it's it's a remnant of the image of God that can't fully be wasn't fully destroyed by um, by sin. Yeah. Glorious ruins. Right. Yep. Actually, I kind of want to like take the edge off your qualification because I get what you're saying. Cause like sometimes we'll recommend something or it'll come out in affirmation denials and people will be essentially confused. The fact that we're saying you ought to, there's value in being experienced in this thing versus we're saying this thing contains all of the truth of what God, God explains to us. Right. There's a difference between those things. Like it's good to be well-read and well-listened in areas where like this is the way in which the world is trying to digest and discern things like science and truth. That is valuable in itself, like without qualification, right? Like the fact that there are going to be people that express these contrary views or going to have different explanations for the means leading to a particular end. That is all super valuable. So I'm with you. I think that it's just good. Like we can recommend stuff where it's like, listen, you're going to hear a very quote unquote secular worldview or evolutionary perspective on this. It doesn't mean that by engaging in that, it's not valuable. Right. As long as you understand the truth, which I also feel we've been pretty outspoken about this muscle memory of being totally immersed in the scriptures so that you're able to discern rightly what is going on. That doesn't invalidate the ability to experience and then to engage with people who hold a very different worldview. Yeah. So it's like super helpful to listen to this stuff. Like yep. there's many of th- there's many of there's many things in my like listening feed that probably on like the surface, somebody would be like, How are you listening to that? Yeah. And I would say, like, this is helpful for me to understand how my colleagues and my friends, how those who are outside the church are understanding either like the contemporary world or have been influenced in their understanding of the contemporary world. So it's okay to be widely listened. Like the Lord God and his spirit who indwells you is meant to lead us into all truth and to discern what is unrighteous and what is righteous. Yeah. And so by virtue of that fact, we actually of all people have the ability to listen to things, to read different things and reading and listening is not endorsement. It's just not. Yep. So like, that'd be like Paul being like, I went to Mars Hill and I endorsed everything that was said there. <laughs> like, you know, I see your, your testimony, your, you know, idol to the unknown God. And I say, yeah, that's totally cool. Actually, I guess he kind of <laughs> says, I know the unknown God, which never mind, bad example. Yeah, bad but, example. <laughs> yeah. But you, but you know what I'm getting at there to be like, right. like, to, could you see Christians today if like Paul, like living in our common era being like, Paul, how dare you? How yeah. dare you go to Mars Hill? Like, could you see how that's like? misunderstood it. How, how would you like, just by being there, you're yeah. endorsing everything they believe. And he'd be like, are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Am I off base? No, you're not. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, pillage the Egyptians, right? I mean, it's it, all truth is our truth. All truth is our God's Amen. truth, right? This, right is the, this is the foundation of presuppositionalism. Right on. Is that all truth is our God's truth. And the fact that other people can even speak of truth and have that concept be comprehensible to them is because they're stealing, they're trying to borrow from our worldview. So I I think you're right. I think you're right on. I appreciate that. Especially since you were basically just saying I was right on. I'm okay with that. (laughs) So what, what are you affirming today, Jesse? Uh, here we go. So I'm going to go back to a book. I've been in this kick of like reading books that maybe like a little bit on the margin not with respect to their content, but more like lesser known works. So this is a book I will, I want to give credit where credit is due. My father gave me this book. It was oh, from man. his library and it's, I'm affirming with J.B. Phillips, 
book called Your God is Too Small. And J.B. Phillips maybe is best known for his like paraphrase translation of the scriptures, which honestly I think is a wonderful complimentary resource when you're looking through scriptures. Actually, in plain language, his whole emphasis there was to bring the full counsel of God into a place where it was like clearly applicable, clearly understandable, clearly resonated with like the common language of the people. So I think there's something lovely about that. Yeah. This book is like, it's a, it's a slender volume. It's 140 pages, but man, is it good? Man, is it on point? Man, is it challenging? And basically his emphasis is he writes like the trouble with many of us today is that we have not found a God big enough for our modern needs. I actually don't have a public publication date in this book. It's like, uh, I mean, I'll show it to you. It's like, it's super old yeah. I, and, and there's nothing in there that tells me when this, this particular version was published, <laughs> but all along I was like, he could have written this yesterday. Yeah. So this idea of like in varying degrees, we suffer from a limited idea of God. I found it to be almost like eternally contemporary. So yeah. If you're looking for something short that's going to challenge you a little bit, that maybe is something from Phillips that you're not well acquainted with, that book for you is Your God is Too Small. So go grab a copy of it or take a look at it. I think you can buy it for like six bucks Probably, on yeah. Kindle. It's worth the price. If you, if you can even, I mean, I'm sure you could probably find a free copy online too somewhere. Probably. Probably. Yeah, yeah I haven't I have read no that, idea. Um, but it does sound like a... I, you can one thing you can count on with Jesse is when he is suggesting a book that it has ongoing effect and application that the words eternal contemporary are going to come out of his mouth. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean there are those books, you know, like uh, like Christianity and Liberalism by uh, by Machen. Like there are those yeah, books sure. that just they just say are precious the and they just they use just the words apply. Just say yep, it. they just they say are it, the though. eternal contemporary. <laughs> And you have to metabolize the eternal contemporary because the intent precedes content. And that's the definitive mocking of Jesse's catchphrases. That's fair. I didn't know until this moment that I used eternal contemporary that much. Oh, you do. uh, You totally do. Do I? I'll take it. I I feel like it's like the best combination of two words to describe the fact that this thing is like so relevant and resonant no matter what age you're in. So again, to all of our friends that would be concerned with... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, epochs and dispensationalism. <laughs> That's not where I'm going. <laughs> it's uh, are just... you? Is, is that your final analysis? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Captain America. I could do this all day. Here's the thing, R.C. Sproul. You know, I, I love and respect him so much. Apparently, he ruined that phrase for me. I didn't even know that he did. <laughs> I, I was using it all this time, and now here's literally what I thought. Everybody all along, like from episode like six on, has thought I'm just copying him. I, I just use that all the time because, uh, like I said to you before we started, in my line of work, I do analyses and they're final. So I <laughs> often say literally yes, in the final, the final analysis. analysis, like this analysis, there were multiple iterations, but this one you're looking at, it's the last one. It's the final it's the f- analysis. <laughs> Someone needs to write that song. Yeah, we, we need to get on that. So yeah, so we, I feel like this was good. We got a little bit, we got a little bit of listening. We got a little bit of reading. That's like really the ultimate combination in affirmations. It's true. Well, let's let's uh, get into the meat. Let's get into it. Uh, So today we're, we're going to recap a little bit um, as we are wont to do, since not everybody is joining our podcast, having listened to the previous ones. So we are in the midst of this ongoing series that is just 
this is just Christian theology. This is just the podcast now. And so we've, we've gone through a number of the loci of systematic theology, and we're kind of at the tail end of what we're calling the creation portion of this. And so we started out by talking about sort of Genesis 1 and, and what, what theories don't work, what kind of interpretations of Genesis 1 don't work. Then we moved to talk about which kind of interpretations do work. Last week, we moved on to Genesis 2 to sort of talk a little bit about mostly what is it, what's the main point of Genesis 2? Because there's, a, there, there's just as many ways to understand kind of on a nuts and bolts level what's going on in Genesis 2 as there are in Genesis 1 and, and other parts of the Bible. But right. we, we, want, we planted our flag in this understanding that the main point of Genesis 2 is to set up the human person, to set up Adam and then Eve towards the end of the chapter as these human rulers of the universe, that they're, they're God's chosen representatives on the planet. And so God creates the man, and then he takes that man and he places it into a garden temple. He places him into a garden temple and gives him a task to care for that garden temple, but not just to stay there, but to expand that garden temple out into the rest of the world. And then also to f- now now fill that expanded garden temple by multiplying, by, by having children and reproducing uh, with his wife, right? So right. that's where we landed. That's the, that's the main emphasis of chapter two. And so that excludes certain kinds of understanding, right? If, if we think that the main emphasis of chapter two of Genesis is focusing on man as the culmination of creation, as God's lieutenant commanders of all creation, which we're going to talk about what that means today when we talk about the image of God. And then all of the rest of the world is created in service of that function of man, right? If the chief end of right. man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then the chief end of creation, the rest of creation, is to serve to allow God, allow man to glorify God and to you know, um, enjoy him forever, right? So the evolutionary hypothesis of the, the sort of ensouled ape or the evolution of Adam, which is popularized by Pete Enns, but it's been around for a long time. Some, some, Tim Keller holds something like that theory. Biologos would hold something like that theory. That view doesn't work on that understanding of what the point of Genesis 2 is. So now we're going to pivot a little bit. Since we've established that as our understanding of the main point and the main structure of Genesis 2, we're now going to talk about what it means for man to be in that state. What is the actual constitution of man that enables him to do that, that makes him the image of God? What does that mean? And how does that then allow him to fulfill that vocation as God's kind of vice commander, vice regent, vice gerent, vice regent. Ooh, nice. I don't remember which one it is. I think regent is automatically vice, right? So yes. vice regent is yes. a, that'd be like a regent's Redundant. regent. So it's vice gerent. Uh, that's a really nitpicky nerdy thing. But his, his lieutenant commander of creation, he's, he's God's right. designated representative to accomplish God's task in the place that God has created for the purpose that God has intended. So we're going to do that primarily because we, we love to have to break into multiple episodes because we don't have a structure. So we're actually going to structure it a little bit today. We're going to use the uh, 10th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism to uh, kind of formulate our structure of this conversation. So question 10 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism Catechism, Catechism reads, <laughs> how did God create man? And the answer is God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. So there's those, there's those component parts that he created them male and female, which we probably won't spend too much time talking about because 
Uh, we did a whole episode on complementarianism that I think touches on most of those issues. But he created a male and female after his own image. That's a second component. And then the next three words kind of describe, actually, I would say the next four clauses here, describe what it means to be in the image of God. So knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and dominion over the creatures. So right. that certainly, there's certainly... It may be more to what it means to be the image of God, and actually the Westminster Larger Catechism says more, but there certainly is not less. So so there's lots of talk about what is the image of God, how is the image of God, but from a Reformed confessional perspective, it's knowledge, righteousness and holiness, and dominion over the creatures. Those three things are what constitute, at least in part, the image of God in man. Right. That's right on. Let me, is it cool if I read the, the larger catechism? Yeah. Because why go shorter when you can go <laughs> larger? So this is 17, if you're tracking at home, and it just elaborates on exactly what Tony said. So it's the same question. How did God create man? And here's the answer. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued, which is a great word, endued them with living, reasonable and immortal souls made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it with dominion over the creatures yet subject to the fall. So in some ways that's purely an elaboration of everything that you said. So you see right. like the same essential elements in there. And here's what I'd argue is that basically this is not the place that we automatically go. If you say like, what was man like? How did God create man in like the initial, the the kind of like first principled state? You don't think of the things that you just said, which is again, another argument for going back to these ideas, like the, all of these confessions to kind of center us on what the scriptures say. So let's unpack some of this stuff. Yeah. So um, the first thing I think, and this isn't, you know, I'm not intending this to be a straightforward like exposition of this phrase. I'm not going to exegete the phrase, but the one thing I think is Im- is important on sort of a, an almost like an exegetical level of this answer to this question. Sometimes people um, they talk about male and female, and they they almost want to make man the image of God, and then female is kind of like this, almost like a, as like an image of the image, like an after derivative. Um, and first of all, I don't think that the I I don't think the biblical text justifies that, right? Male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created that male and female. Like that's, that's part and parcel of the creation narrative is that man and was humanity was created both male and female and that the image of God rests and resides in both male and female. Sometimes people will say, um, the image of God really is, is seen most clearly in like the union of man and woman, um, I understand how they get there, but then that you know puts all sorts of weird questions in place. Like, well, what about Jesus who didn't have a wife? Is he somehow not fully the image of God, which is just incoherent nonsense? So I don't want to go that direction. But even just exegetically, and I don't mean exegetically in terms of the scripture, but in terms of un- pulling the meaning out of the text of this con- this catechism question, male and female is further explained by after his own image. So right. it doesn't say male after his own image and female, which is what we would expect if if the question here or the answer here was saying somehow that male has a primary sense of being the image and female has like a derivative or a secondary sense. This is not the language we would expect. And that's because they're following the biblical language. They're following the fact that God created man, male and female, in the image of God, he created them. Right. It's not it's not this derivative image that sometimes we see um, people talk about with that. 
Right. But the first the first big thing to talk about is what what is this language of image getting at? And again, like I said, the, the next three clauses or statements are going to unpack that for us. But the image of God, this language is is language that is borrowed from or is related to uh, the ancient Near Eastern context. Right. And I don't want to get all like Bible projects, Mike Heiser on this, but the, the ancient Near East, um, the context frequently, and this actually isn't even just the ancient Near East, this happened in Rome, and in, in Roman and Greek territories, Persian, basically every ancient culture, they had this practice where there would be outposts of, of a kingdom. And there would be statues of that king or sometimes of the gods of that nation, but they would put these statues, these images there as a representation that the, the authority of the one who was imaged in that statue or image or icon or whatever it was, the authority of that person rested there and ex- extended to there. So if Nebuchadnezzar, right, the, the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, this is a good example. It's not just like Nebuchadnezzar thought like, oh, it'd be a great idea if there was this big gold statue of me. There's power right. and authority vested in that statue. And that's part of why Nebuchadnezzar reacts so strongly when the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrews refuse to bow to it because to refuse to bow to that image is to refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this will come into play when we get to chapter three, when the serpent comes and attacks the image of God, that's actually an attack on God himself. So when, right. when the Bible talks about the humans being created in the image of God, it's not about physical resemblance. It's not even so much. I mean, it is, but it's not entirely about moral resemblance. What it is, is it's God saying, this is my representative on earth. This is my created delegate who will accomplish my task on earth. I've created the cosmos, I've structured it, and then this ties into framework theory that we talked about before. You know, God creates a space, and then he creates a ruler for that space. He creates a space, and then he creates a ruler for that space. Well, humans, as the the ultimate creation, the, the pinnacle of creation, are seen as God's culminating act to complete that work of filling the space and ruling over it. So when, right. when God says, subdue the earth and fill it, that's the task. That's the image is that, that, um, that activity that God sort of instills into the humans to continue his creative work in a sort of derived or a derivative way. He's extending his authority and extending his creative act into creation by means of these created delegates that are his image. So it would be similar to... Um, you know, if you kind of think about like um, when you go to a government building and there's yes, like, an, like say a, this. a picture of the president is on the wall. Yes. Or you go to like um, a, a state or city building and there's a picture of the current mayor, a portrait of the current right. mayor. What that represents is this building is a representation of the authority of the government, which is in this moment embodied or is centralized or focused on this person. President Biden's portrait in a courtroom somewhere or in a state house somewhere isn't just art. It's a statement about that this, you know, you like you don't have pictures of the president at the courthouse because that's right. the judicial branch. You have pictures of the president at the governor's, you know, the state house, the state capitol where the governor right. does his work. So those kinds of things are not entirely foreign to our culture, but they definitely are a little bit removed. But anyone in the ancient ancient Near Eastern culture, or even in the first century in Roman and Greco-Roman culture, anyone reading this and understanding it would have immediately understood that Adam being in the image of God is because he's an extension of God's authority into yes, the creator. exactly. 
Yeah, right on. It actually, I think you're right on. Like, it's even more than that, right? Because like we understand the idea of embassies, right? Right. So like when you set up an embassy in a foreign country, it is all of the authority. It's an analog for the actual ruling authority of that domain in a different place. Right. And so that's what you have even in the garden here before the fall. So like to extend your metaphor. So one time I was in London and my passport was stolen. So I had to go to the U.S. embassy so I could like actually come home to the right. US. But here's the crazy thing. When I went to the US embassy, they said to me, well, welcome home. Yeah. Like even when I went in, it's because like that place, even though it's in a foreign country, it was representative of the place that to which I actually belonged because it had all of the authority and the rights, even though it was in a foreign land, that particular domain belonged in a way to the United States. Yeah. So that's the kind of what we're talking about here. Like even the garden is a representation of that. And the original emphasis was to take that garden and to expand it, to have dominion over all of the created orders, such that that embassy continued to push out its borders. That was all claim for the kingdom of God. So again, I actually think that in many ways, the way in which we think about these lines of like demarcation nationally come in some way. They are derivative to the very way in which God has created the world and originally right. set it up. So the only reason I was able to get like my passport renewed is because they're like, oh, you're American. You are basically in America right now, right. even though you're not in, you're like, you're actually in a foreign land. This is space for you. Right. This yeah. is space to which you belong. And therefore, because we have the right to act in a way that is an extension of the actual place from which you're from, we can grant you the authority because the authority has been given to us. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we understand this in other contexts too, right? If, um, if an American soldier was stationed in Poland, right? Right now we're in yes. the, if you're listening to this in the future somewhere and the, the war in Ukraine is over, then praise God that the violence is done. But at least Amen. as of recording this, there's still war in Europe. If, if there was an American soldier who was somehow stationed in Poland, right, he was there helping deliver weapons or something like that, and he went out for a walk, and he, he wandered across the border into Ukraine, and a Russian soldier saw him and shot him, then that would be considered an act of war against the United States of America. Right. Because that person is an extension of the authority of the president of the United States as the commander in chief of the army of the United States of America into wherever he goes. And so that idea of this extension of authority, extension of presence by means of some sort of object or some sort of person, you know, like you think in the ancient world, um, when uh, in Nehemiah or in uh, Ezra, when the messengers come, uh, not Nehemiah or Ezra, in um, First and Second Chronicles, towards the end, when the the, the messenger comes from um, from Babylon or from Assyria, yes. and they come to the to the um, wall, they're coming under the authority of whoever it was, Asher Bonner Paul or whoever it happened to be at the time. If that person, if someone, some Israelite up on the wall was like, oh, this will be easy. This guy's a blowhard and he shoots him with a bow and arrow and kills him. He didn't just shoot that guy. He didn't just kill some random right. dude. He killed a representative of the king of Assyria, which would have been a serious transgression of that uh, culture and would have been a serious transgression because that messenger, this is why it says don't shoot the messenger, right? Because that messenger is coming under the authority of the one who sent him. And therefore that authority is carried with him. And so an affront to that authority is an affront to the one who sent him. And so this is obviously when we get to Christology, we're going to talk all about Christ as the messenger of the Lord and the one who comes 
you know, as the representative of the Father, who is himself right. God, and not only bears the Father's authority, which is already a thing, but bears his own authority as God himself. We're going to talk about this kind of, it's not even really an analogy, this kind of feature of reality that we all instinctively recognize. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to get back to it. But it's important for us to really land and understand image of God is not about visual similarity or right physical on. characteristics. It's about the authority and in some levels, the moral characteristics of the one sending him. Um, an ambassador, for example, an ambassador is selected by a member of the executive branch. Generally, the, the president uh, um, appoints ambassadors and that ambassador goes forward on behalf of Again, on behalf of the whole country, but specifically on behalf of the executive branch, they're representing the executive branch and especially the president of the United States when they go forward. They're expected to carry themselves and to behave in a way that brings forward the moral character of the nation. An ambassador right. who goes to another country and um, does all sorts of immoral things looks poorly on the country that sent them. And this is also, again, the same thing. This is why there are things like righteousness and holiness, which we'll talk about, that are part of the image of God. Because not only is it an extension of the person's of, of God's authority into creation, it's an extension of God's authority in a particular way that carries with it the moral reality of who God is. We see that in the, the question 17, which is the expanded version. It's yes. not just that they have knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. They also have the law of God written on their heart. Exactly. So all of this is wrapped up into what it means to be the image of God. And I know we're spending a lot of time on it, but it's so vital for us not to make the mistake of thinking that this is about a physical similarity or that it's exclusive. You know, like some people will say, it's about being able to reason and be able to use communication right. and language. Well, that may be part of what's wrapped up in it, but the angels communicate. The angels can use language. Presumably they use reason. We wouldn't say that they're made in the image of God, although Calvin does, which is a little bit weird, but we wouldn't generally say that the angels are made in the image of God. That's an exclusively human thing. Angels are are sent as messengers to do tasks, but we don't see them carrying the same authority yes. as image bearers that we see humans, at least in their intended state, carrying. And when we think about the end of creation, ultimately, Jesus Christ as not just God, but the God-man is the one who's sitting on the throne and is ruling over all creation, who's been given the name of all, above all names. That's that's what, we sh what Adam should have been, is God... God's agent ruling on God's behalf over God's creation. We'll get to chapter three in a little while, but that obviously didn't happen. But we have to land that that's what the image of God means. If we get off base, then we end up in sort of these endless speculative statements about well, what is the image of God? Is it speech? Is it logic? Is it is it right. love? Is it the ability to have interpersonal relations? All of those things may be wrapped up into it, but that, that ability to be God's designated representative and to to bring his authority and continue his work in creation is fundamental to what it is to be the image of God. Yeah, it's principally about authority. And I'm glad that you bring that up because in some cases, there'll be times where people will think somehow us being created with like arms and legs and fingers and like toes and like eyebrows, that that somehow is like the demonstrative or manifest physical presence of God as if like to be made in the presence of God is like to have those things. Right. Like somehow because God is spirit, 
he doesn't have those things. But when he creates, this is somehow like a expression of who he is. If he were in the physical form, that's not it at all. So like this idea that like, again, being endued with like living reasonable, immortal souls. First of all, we see something about like the, the eternal nature of God that he, every person actually is created in this way to live forever, either into eternal delight with the father or into eternal punishment. Even from the beginning, we see like the nature of God then represented in what it means that God is vouchsafing his authority in, in some ways we might say like a far distant place. Right. Right. And the fact that he's got creating this world, but then beyond that we have like totally just impounded in who we are. The fact that we do live forever. Where does that come from? That is a reflection of God. That is the spirit of God, the un like the essential unvisible or invisible nature of God manifested in his visible or concentrated yeah. creation, so to speak, which should make more sense then when we come to the son of God being this like focused, concentrated in the sense that of course he's coming into our own world that God would be, or Jesus as God would be truly God and truly man. Right. Like this, this should make more sense then. Of course, it's still a mystery, but what we find is that it's in t- it's totally consistent with the idea that we have a living, reasonable, and immortal soul. Like again, yeah. this language floors me because like, what does it mean to have like a reasonable soul, right? Like right. this idea that again, God himself is reasonable, that God himself is fully just and fully righteous. So any punishment that he mets out, any judicious act which he undertakes is one that is entirely correct. And somehow when he creates man, all of that is part and parcel for who man is from the very beginning when it's in its uncorrupted nature. So I agree with you. I I think there's a sense that like somehow when we think about being made in the image of God, we think about like how we look in our humor, in our constitution and our state of being. And all of that is kind of the tail and it's not the dog. Also dogs not made the image of God, but a creation of God. You know what I mean? Like this sense that all that we have, all that we are is in some way related to who God is. But even we have a tendency to mistake that and to kind of like elevate what is created as the creator. When in fact, what is below the surface is more essential to who God is and what he's trying to communicate through the way in which he's made us. So I think that this is like a helpful conversation, but it sounds cliche but we're after like the non-cliche things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to pivot a little bit uh, to the next kind of sequence of words here, because, you know, we could, we could dig into each of these phrases and do entire episodes on them. We're not going to do that, but the next, the next couple um, phrases are important, right? It says that he's created, God has created man in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness Right. And with dominion over the over the creatures. So I want to zero in on knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And I think that the um, the larger catechism's expansion of this is helpful when it says yes. having the law of God written in their heart and the power to fulfill it. And this is important because Roman Catholic theology does not actually believe that uh, the natural state of man is such that it could have obe- he could have obeyed God's law, right. right? So Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy to a, to a lesser extent, but still on a certain extent, argues that the difference, the problem that man has in his original created state is that he's not God, 
right? And so in order to have any sort of fruition with God, any sort of benefit from God, man has to be elevated out of his natural state into a supernatural state. And so the, right. the Roman Catholic conception, especially the Roman Catholic conception, has this idea of something called the donum superadditum, which is the superadded gift. It's the extra little something that God gave to Adam in the garden, which allowed him to have fellowship with God. The, the Protestant conception and the, the Reform Forum did an excellent conference on this a little while back called the Deeper Protestant, Con- Deeper Protestant Conception, something like that. Just look up Deeper Protestant <laughs> on their website and you'll find it. The Protestant conception of this is that Adam had everything he needed to be able to have and maintain fellowship with God. Right. It, it, is, it is the human's natural estate to be in fellowship with God. And so he was created in the natural state in fellowship with God. His chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in the state he was created, he had everything that he needed in order to do that. So he had knowledge of God's law because it was written on his heart. He knew, I, I, I have no doubt that Adam understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. That when he when he thought about God, he thought about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He knew that the command to be fruitful and multiply was not just about physical reproduction, but it was about spiritual reproduction. He understood those things. And so we have to get that from the Bible. We understand that from the Bible. It's just plain common sense, right? Adam was told not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he should die. Well, no one had ever died. But how did Adam know that? Well, God had given him knowledge of reality. God had in, right. instilled in him the knowledge he needed to understand the commands that he was given, which involved understanding who God is, what's expected of him, how to properly worship him. It's not like worship before the fall was normative, that Adam could do whatever he wanted, and as long as he didn't disobey God's command. No, God had God still regulated worship prescriptively. He still said, this is how you are to worship me. We, he, you know, we don't have specific evidence of that, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So these two phrases that he was created in with knowledge and in righteousness and holiness are right. sort of, um, they're sort of metonyms. They're, they're, um, they're a way to refer to a whole complex of different things to say that Adam had all the knowledge he needed. He was created in an upright fashion. He was created in proper, positive relationship with God. And all he had to do to maintain that was to fulfill the law, which he had the ability to do. That's really, really important because I think a lot of reformed Christians sort of have this underlying concept that Adam was actually sort of totally depraved prior to the fall, that it was just a matter of time before he fell. That's not a foregone conclusion. Obviously in God's providence, God ordained it that way, which means it couldn't have unfolded any other way because nothing unfolds other than how God ordains it to unfold. But in terms of how God created man, he had everything he needed in the garden. He had the knowledge of what was required of him and what was forbidden of him. He had the ability to do so. He had the, um, he was already righteous. He was already holy, which means he had already been sanctified to this work. He'd already been set apart by God to accomplish this task. And he had all of the the physical tools to do it. He was to expand the garden. Well, he had the ability to cultivate the land. He was to be right. fruitful and multiply. The man right. and woman, not to be crass, but they had all the parts they needed to reproduce. That was part of the constitution of man. And this is so important. And this is one of the hallmarks of Reformed theology. More so even than things like Lutheranism, 
which has tends to have more of a Roman Catholic view of this, at least the Lutherans I've interacted. They tend to think more in terms of grace elevates humans to sort mm-hmm. of a supernatural status rather than grace restoring nature. That tends to be more along the lines of the way the Lutherans go in my experience. This is not a exclusively reformed position, but it's a distinctively reformed position. And we have to land it. That is part and parcel of understanding the image of God. That the image of God is a task and a delegated authority, and right. it also is all of the tools and constitution and makeup that's required to accomplish that task. If we miss that, then we've kind of missed the whole point of Genesis 2 entirely. Right, which is why, like, and we've done episodes on this before, like you see the dovetailing or the bleeding over, if you will, into this idea that all of life, the vocation that we're giving, all of this falls under God's purview, that he has ordained it, that it is holy, that itself is righteous, so, and again, it also emphasizes the fact that like righteousness is a status that God confers upon us, not that something we earn, which right. again is very different from the Catholic perspective. So like, I'm, I'm totally down with you. Like here we have from the very beginning, if we understand the underpinnings, this sense that when God creates man, he creates him for his glory. He creates him with a purpose. He creates him holy and righteous. And like, I think we've often said before, it's almost like you have to be very careful about trying to compare any kind of a current state of man to like the original state in the garden because they are different. We're talking about a probationary period in which this is not a setup, right? Like there's some, I think people sometimes believe like, listen, God provided all this information. Then he dropped the tree and it was like a setup. It was a sting operation. He was there driving by with the lights off in his car, waiting for them just to eat the fruit because he knew that was going to happen. And what we're saying here is like, no, no, no. When he creates with his righteousness and holiness and the full knowledge because a lot of people get caught up in this idea of like, well, what did Adam really know? He didn't know anything. I think that that's like really short sighted and myopic. Yeah. God gave him this full sense of knowledge. It was like a theological purity and profundity in what he knew and understood. And in that sense, he still rebelled against God. And every day we also like him have done the same thing. But there was a full, actual, and legitimate probation that was exhibited here and given to Adam to right. understand. And yet, he still rebelled against the Savior in the same way that we do every day since then. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to touch on, and this is something that is, again, is more in the um, expanded version in the in question 17 here. It ends this, this sort of little section on how God created man by saying, yet subject to fall. And so everything right. that we've said about Adam having the ability to fulfill the law, Adam having all the constitutional makeup, all of the knowledge that he needed, the one thing that we can say is we shouldn't say it was imperfection, but it was an incompletion, right? Adam right. had an eschatology. His his reality was moving towards an end game, towards a telos. And that telos would have been a confirmation in permanence, a confirmation and a, a transition from immutable in righteousness or from mutable in righteousness to immutable in righteousness. And so this, this is often something that... Um, again, I think Reformed Christians get wrong, is they think about what it was like before the fall, and we think it was basically the same as after the fall, except Adam screwed up. But but right. in terms of what Adam could or couldn't do before the fall, and what we can and can't do after the fall, what we can and can't do after, after regeneration, and then what we can and can't do in the glorification, it's all basically the same. And maybe it, it comes down to like, our knowledge or like our experience that that changes what it is. And that's actually a fundamentally Pelagian view, right? It's this view that like, well, after the fall, man was in the basically the same spot, but they had this experience of, of sin. And so they were much more likely to sin, but they didn't have right. to. 
Well, this this is a, a fourfold distinction. Uh, it was sort of initially originally um, written about by Augustine in you know the four fifties, and it was picked up most sort of most forcefully uh, and most probably most popularly by Thomas Boston in a book called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And I'm going to yes. run through this real quick. I'm not going to use Latin because I always get the Latin wrong, but it's important <laughs> for us to get these sort of four different categories because the image of God in the pre-fall state is probably different than we would think it is because right. we affirm that Adam could have succeeded, but we yes. also have to affirm because he did that he also could have failed to succeed. And yes. so prior to the fall... Adam and Jesse can look, see I'm looking at my screen trying to make sure I get this right. I've got this nice little grid that I've pulled up from Monergism.com. Well done. The pre-fall state, Adam was both able to sin and able not to sin. Mm-hmm. So he had a, a wide open horizon in front of him. He could choose to obey God. He could choose not to obey God. And that horizon was wide open in front of him. Yes. After the fall, and we'll get into this more in detail when we get to um, when we get to the fall in our sequence here, he no longer had the ability not to sin. So right. he he was able to sin, obviously, but he was unable to not sin. And so the difference there, this is important. Able to sin, able not to sin are referring to particular choices in particular situations. Able to sin after the fall is still talking about particular choices in particular situations. Unable to not sin is a statement of universal fact. There was no sense in any circumstance after the fall where Adam could do something that was not sinful. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow because Mm -hmm. it means that after the fall, Adam was entirely, totally depraved. That's language, of course, our listeners will recognize. But it's saying that even in Adam's most altruistic moments— even in Adam's best moments, when he served God and worshiped God, even when he proclaimed with faith that Eve would be the, the mother of all living, which is a statement of accepting and trusting in the promise, even that was tinged by sin. And that's really, really key because we don't have a lot, we don't have any experience with what it would be like before the fall. So right. we have to sort of understand what it's like after the fall and then sort of think the opposite, right? When you do something, even when you do something that is quote unquote right, it's it's a non-sinful thing. We all understand that there is always still this mixture of motivations in us. That yes. when I do the right thing, there's still a mixture of motivation of not loving the Lord with all my heart, of wanting to do something for my own benefit, sometimes at the detriment of others. Those things are always still there. Prior to the fall, all of those corrupt motivations, they weren't part of the equation. There was sort of this pure free choice that Adam was making between sin and not sin that was not tainted by that sin nature. And uh, right. how exactly that resulted in the fall, how Adam had all the knowledge he needed and all the ability he needed and yet still screwed it up, I have no idea. There's no there's no logical answer for that, but it's important for us to understand those different states. And then, of course, there's more, more to the fourfold states that we'll talk about as we kind of work through systematic theology. Yeah, that's right on. I think it was, I think, and somebody's going to correct me on this. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said that even our best works are just glittering sin, by which he yeah. meant that there you have like all, everything that's inside of us, the the abundance of our outward expressions come from the inward nature. And so even there, when we do something quote unquote altruistic, it is like mixed and muddy. The water is always not clear because we have these mixed motives. And that's right on, right? Like we would expect when Jesus comes, actually, when he comes in the flesh, when he directs 
the Pharisees, he's always after this heart attitude. So it's, of course, easy to play act. It's easy to be the hypocrite. It's easy to kind of say, like, I'm doing these things. But what God, of course, is always after is the purity of the intent. Oh, man, you want me to say it, don't you? (laughs) It's the purity of the intent. And that is the bigger deal. Like, that is the heart, no pun intended, of the matter. And so we ought to be concerned. We ought to expect that God, when he comes in the flesh, would be after those things. And because he is God, that he would be able to perceive those things from the very beginning. And so it is, in some ways, hard for us really to understand how Adam could have like that actual true purity, because we don't understand that. It's not our condition. It's not our constitution. So listen, by the way, Tony, have we talked about this before about you epically use the word constitution in lots of ways? Did I mention <laughs> I this in the podcast? Have. No? I don't think we have. There, listen, so this is like, as we wind this down, there was a time, I want to tell this story. There was a time, you and I, <laughs> it's going to sound so strange. You and I were walking on a beach together and you turned to me and you said to me, I really like the constitution of this beach. <laughs> I remember this. I remember this distinctly because it had lots yeah. of it had lots of shells and interesting rocks to look at. Yes. And I thought, wow, that's like a really highfalutin top shelf way nice. of talking about the current state, like the, just the general uh, makeup you know, kind of, of the beach. all I can think of is constitution now of yeah. this, of this beach. But like, that's a really good <laughs> word because what we're talking about is like the essential characteristics and elements, the internal essence. And that is what God is after. So like in the pre-fall state, there is a purity to that, that we cannot understand now, like ex post because it does not exist and Adam forfeited that in this probationary period. So in some ways, like we're trying to evaluate something that is almost unfair for us to evaluate because we cannot comprehend it yeah. in the least degree. It does not exist, but it did then. And it shouldn't remove us from saying at least in way of like trying to give intellectual assent to the fact that it did exist yeah. in that pre-fall state. So like, there's a lot to consider here. And like, again, as we kind of close out this episode, one of the things we often recommend is that you would take what we've said here, this particular episode, pass it along to a friend and dialogue about it amongst yourselves. There's something really intensely valuable about that process. And it's worth talking about. This kind of thing is worth talking about. This isn't just like armchair theology. It's trying to understand who man is now based on who man was created to be. And when we find the Christ man, the God man who we boast on coming, we find that he is again, truly God, truly man. He satisfies all these things. He is the one who actually and fully comprehends them in a way that we cannot and makes all things right. Yeah. Well, uh, welcome to Jesse being the king of unintentional transitions. <laughs> if you would like to dialogue about Why some unintentional? of this stuff. What was that? Why unintentional? Was this intentional? Was it just that smooth? I mean, I was trying to. I was oh, trying man. to like, you know, land the plane. It was so, so sp- smooth that even I didn't pick it up. Listen, like butter. Like butter. So we've we've hinted at this uh, fact that after I rage quit the internet that we were working on a way to uh, try to have some sort of digital footprint that didn't involve getting sucked down back into the muck and mire of Facebook. Right and so we have created, this is an experiment. I don't know any other podcasts that have done this. We've created Ooh. a Reform Brotherhood Telegram group and also a Reform Brotherhood Telegram channel. And so the difference between a group and a channel 
Uh, if you just want to get announcements about the Reform Brotherhood, a link to the latest episode or the latest contest or some sort of like word art thing of what I'm reading or whatever, then you can join the te- uh, the Telegram channel. And the way you join that channel is you point your um, your browser on your phone or your computer, wherever you have a browser, to t the letter t dot me slash love the brotherhood. And you should get instructions for how to join Telegram if you're not a member. If you're already a member of Telegram, you get instructions. You, would, I think you just, it's just a link to the channel and you just join the channel. Um, right. So that's if you just want announcements. That, there's no interaction on that. It's just straight a straight feed. Um, so some people aren't, aren't into having a lot of like chat notifications. We're not going to blow up your phone with a lot of stuff there. Like I said, you get links to the episode. If we have a new contest or something like that, that'll show up there. If, however, you are looking to have some dialogue, either with me and Jesse or with other members of the Reformed Brotherhood, you can actually go to T, again, the letter T dot me slash Reformed Brotherhood. And that is a uh, group that uh, can hold up to 200,000 people. I don't think we'll ever get to that many. But uh, that's real-time com- uh, communications with other people who are listening to the episodes and wanting to have some dialogue on that. So if you wanted to go in there and say, hey, I want to talk more about the fourfold state of man. Uh, and they didn't quite cover it, but let's have a conversation about it. That's a real, a real-time interactive channel that you can dialogue with us. You can dialogue with others, just like most chat chat interfaces. You can turn off notifications. You can mute channels for a while. Um, but Telegram really is a great way to communicate. Um, it's encrypted a little bit better than some of the other channels. Right. There's not an algorithm-based feed where it's going to start sending you stuff. There's no upvote, downvote. There's no way for the, the system to prioritize inflammatory content, which is what happens on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and it's, it's just a way to chat with other people. Um, and then if you want to talk to them directly about something, it's very easy to just open up a private channel to talk to them directly. So check it out again for the channel. It's t.me slash love the brotherhood. And if you'd like to join the group and have some conversation, it's t.me slash reform brotherhood. And we would really love to see you join that and just have some, right some great theological conversations. Uh, maybe it's your lunch break and you just want to have a couple quick chats. Maybe you've got a prayer request or you want to ask if anyone has prayer requests. All of that stuff is great. Maybe you drew a picture of thumb man and you'd like to <laughs> share it with the group. That would be amazing too. And uh, I would be lying if I said you probably, if you want to go online and see pictures of my son, August Jesse, then you better join the channel as well. Yeah, actually, I promise pictures of my son, August Jesse on the telegram channel. Listen, that's, that's worth it. I've seen this child. He is uh, super adorable. And I, I think that you're right. This is like a super experiment because so telegram is like this freeware. It's cross platform cloud-based instant messaging service. But most people probably don't know is like, that's what we use. So we don't actually use for the most part, like your kind of native messaging app. We use telegram to right. text back and forth to each other. And it's just a, a lovely platform. It's it's super nice. So like, if you're wondering, will Jesse and Tony see this? Like your messages will arrive like next to messages of my wife asking like <laughs> what we need from the grocery yeah. store. So yeah, this is like a new way to kind of get involved and get connected with all of the listeners, all the lovely brothers and sisters who are part. And again, if you'd like to see Tony's baby, and I'm telling you, you want to see this baby. <laughs> It's, it's a really adorable baby. And I made the case today that I think if I took a picture of this glorious child and just drew a mustache and beard on it, I, I wouldn't know if it was you or him speaking to me <laughs> if you just threw a microphone in front. Yes. And actually right now, I know this is fabulous podcasting, 
But I right now am going to put a picture of August Jesse on the on the page here so that I can make sure that I fulfill my obligation. There you so go. I'm selecting a photo right now. Uh, this is a good one. We have a little like uh, onesie that makes him look like a little lamb, and it's adorable. And now, if you join the channel, you will be able to see a picture of our child. There, there you go. So jump into that and send us a message, right? Jump in there and let us know that you're a part and. I actually think we're, I don't know if this is groundbreaking, but like, this is the way that I think is lovely to try to redeem that online space in a way that's a little bit more uplifting and gives everybody a chance to communicate with one another. So try it out, loved ones. Join us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, until we see everyone in the Telegram channel and until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood. (laughs) 